and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to the dispatch.com to get all the free stuff or maybe to become a paid member um, of the Dispatch community. Um, if you go to the dispatch.com, you can find out what the real treasure of the Sierra Madre is. Today's episode is brought to you by or sponsored by or made possible by uh, ExpressVPN and Keeps. More about both of them in a little bit. So today we are breaking with our, our breaking is not even strong. We are just falling down on the job um, by not continuing to have high quality guests um, and, uh, and people that people have been clamoring to hear from who haven't been on this podcast. And instead, we're going back to, what do they call it in uh, Wag the Dog? Old shoe. Old wow. reliable shoe. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, a fan favorite, good friend of mine, Chris Starwald. Chris, welcome back to the Remnant. Is this third or fourth, fourth time for you? Fifth. Fifth, my God. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I think the phrase you're looking for is hot dogs for lunch. When you say, oh, well, I yeah. guess we just we can have hot dogs for lunch. So now I'm I'm hot dogs for lunch. And that's fine. Because you know what? Hot dogs are delicious, Jonah. They are delicious. They are delicious. Although I have to say, I'm proud of my daughter. She officially says that she is no longer interested in hot dogs. She is all about brats now. Hey, brats are delicious, but we wouldn't limit ourselves to one kind of sausage. No, this is you true. know we 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 the the this the sky is wide. You can have, there are knockwurst, there are bratwurst, there are all kinds of sausages to enjoy. There there's a sausage for nearly every occasion. Um, I gotta say, I've, I've lost, I've, I've lost my, um, my love of kielbasa. There's something mono flavored about it that just, I, I, I weary of it. It doesn't have a, as Churchill might say, there's not enough theme to the pudding. Um, <laughs> but if you were from Wheeling, West Virginia, if you were from the Ohio Valley, you would know that every butcher shop, every meat market is going to have a slightly different kielbasa. I carried around in my wallet a long time from Miklas Meat Market in Wheeling, West Virginia, a great uh, a butcher order on the green paper in the butcher's wax pencil. And the way they spelled kielbasa was K-I-L-B-A-S-S-Y. And there are as many <laughs> ways to spell kielbasa as there are kinds of kielbasa to eat, places where you have a lot of Eastern and Central European immigrants. Fair, fair. And I'm, I'm not saying, I'm just saying that the kielbasa I've had of late um, has, has wearied me. And um, I, I understand. Uh, but brat this is such a wonderful, rich variety of brats. Also, um, for years, I was terrified of blood sausage. Or oh, blood really? Pudding. Okay. But uh, now that I've had good the good stuff from, like, UK and stuff, I, I, I've grown quite fond of it. Um, when it's good, it's, when it's good, it's very good. <clears throat> like oysters. When it's good, it's very good. But don't ever chance a dodgy one. Yes. It's like, uh, you know, my thing about gas station sushi in Alabama. Um, <laughs> if, the, if, 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 if the odds are greater than 1% that you will be, um, as my mom would say, in the smallest room in the house for too long, <laughs> probably best not to eat it at all. So um, I would I, I like this this approach that you have to your podcast where you clear out the suckers. A long discussion of sausages 
followed by gastrointestinal distress discussion. Now you've really taken it down to the core. You are like the Trump campaign. You have you have lowered turnout to the point where you feel that you can control the uh, control the election. That's right. It's, it's sort of like Mortal Kombat or whatever. You want to clear out <laughs> the lo- the lower fighters and just have the people who are worthy of our of our rank punditry. I should tell That's people. Right. Uh, Chris Starwalt, as if as if anybody left on this podcast at this point needs to know this, but he is the politics editor at Fox News. Is that that true? Yes, yes, that is true. And um, uh, and a um, a finer gentleman you could meet, but you'd have to work at it. Um, yeah, you'd have to. You'd probably not within arm's reach. I would hope. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So. Where shall we begin? Um, we talked about this a little bit on our uh, friend and colleague Brett Bear's podcast yesterday. Um, I think the half-life on this in terms of punditry is, it, 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 or I should say the shelf-life on this is wearing thin. It's starting to smell a little ripe. But um, we should talk a little bit more about the Tulsa rally. Okay. Um, if you read Hugh Hewitt this morning, you, would, did not. you, uh, you would discover that um, it means absolutely nothing. Um, 0.0 on the Richter scale, and uh, everything's l- looking great. So I s- I'm pretty confident you're not there, but I also don't think you think it was a 10 on the Richter scale either, right? You know, um, partisan analysis is useless. Um, the We have to, in... In my business, <clears throat> if you're going to call races and you're going to make forecasts, you're going to make sheets and lists and rankings and all of that stuff, you have to divorce yourself from uh, your views and opinions, wants and desires uh, as much as you possibly can. You know, we're entering the phase of the election, or at least the Trump campaign hopes that we're entering the phase of the election where it's the circus and where this new kind of the the New York Times reporters who say that it's uh, what's his name Ben Smith who went from BuzzFeed and then became the quasi ombudsman the quasi budsman uh, at the Times writing their media column and criticizing quasi budsman sounds like a Cheech and Chong remake of like the Hunchback of Notre Dame <laughs> which would be let's be honest way better than the Brothers Corsican <laughs> fair enough All right, I'm sorry uh, go on. Ben Smith yeah but. The the argument here that Smith is making and that his colleagues are making when it comes to anti-racism is that there is no other side and that this false objectivity, blah, 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 blah. Now, I don't know about that there. I'm not so sure about that there. I think there's lots of other sides and and um, degrees of implementation and approaches and lots and lots. Of, there aren't two sides. There's 200. But a place where that is true is in the false equivalency of horse race coverage. And the false equivalency of horse race coverage is um, a thing happens, reporters, uh, horse race coverage reporters are looking for their story of the day. Something seems like it's an outrage or it could potentially qualify as an outrage. Then you get the other side's perspective on the outrage. So um, let's say, so Mike Pence stumbled going up the stairs today on Air Force Two. Doesn't matter. But if a reporter for, uh, if, the, if a reporter for the New York Times calls up the Biden campaign and says, what, do you have any comment on Mike Pence stumbling going up the stairs? You're gosh darn right. We have a comment. It's a stumble in leadership 
just like the blah, 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 blah. And you can have a whole story out of nothing. And the closer you get to election day, the more you get of those false equivalency stories. Thing happens. We asked the other side about it. The other side said it was terrible. We asked the side that it happened to. They said it's not a factor. And on to the next thing. It's dumb coverage. Uh, it blows things out of proportion. If you remember, I think it was Jonathan Martin, but somebody chasing after Mitt Romney in 2012 and, and yelling, what about your gaffes? As he was going to lay a, a wreath uh, at the uh, Polish war dead memorial. It's, it's that kind of coverage. And what Hugh Hewitt thinks about the candidate, what Hugh Hewitt thinks about the candidate he is backing having a lackluster rally can't matter because Hugh Hewitt is playing, and not just Hugh, but every Democrat writing in support of Joe Biden, every Republican writing in support of Trump is doing algebra. They're solving for X. And in their case is X is their candidate winning. Mm -hmm. So, um, so my take on the rally, we'll, we'll, we'll I, I pick on Hugh enough, so we'll just, we'll just, yeah, I was just, I, I wasn't, I, Hugh, it could, you could have put in any of my oh, sure. friends, any, yeah. any number of my friends or anybody, not just. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's fair. Um, I mean, uh, and we don't need to dwell on things, Fox, but as sort of a case in point, I really did enjoy when the seven o'clock hour started on Saturday night with the Tulsa rally and our friend uh, Jesse Waters in the first 30 seconds said, I think three times that the stadium was packed. <laughs> um, before John Roberts I, had to say, it's, ah, it's about, you know, the actual reporter saying, ah, well, I, could, I couldn't full. believe that everybody packed in cheek by jowl. They had all that room to spread out. Why did they pack in? Why didn't they spread out in the auditorium? Did the campaign want them down there? Or did I, if I would have been there, I would have said, I'll be good up here in the rafters. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there was room to socially distance, which was the yeah. odd, odd thing about it. But Poor anyway. James Lankford and his wife, the only two people in the whole place wearing a mask, sitting there, packed in with all of these people, looked like they wanted to jump out of their shoes. Yeah, but the creepy thing is they were leather masks and they were supposed <laughs> to be going someplace else for a Saturday night. Um, uh, so uh, where was it going to go? Oh, so like my own take is I actually think that, first of all, it proves, I, I, I think that the, the TikTok and K-pop brigades analysis is kind of, mostly irrelevant or BS, you know, I mean, I'm sure a bunch of teens did book tickets, but it doesn't, there wasn't a right. finite supply. This was just people right. expressing interest. So that doesn't, it really doesn't matter. You know, they would have let them in. Right. And, um, so that's sort of an, uh, uh, you know, a red herring, but it reveals, I think first and foremost, that everybody's kind of right of among smart people offering explanations and that, People were afraid of the coronavirus and the idea of being packed into a stadium. And the Trump campaign wants to blame that on the media for scaring people and um, also scaring people about violent protesters and all that, which I think was a much lower order thing. Um, but the Trump campaign also wants to pretend as if the coronavirus doesn't scare people. So they're kind of caught in this weird, you know, uh, sort of oxymoronic position. But I think the thing that it does tell you is that the campaign is not running well, right? I mean, it just, I mean, no. if you have supposedly a fantastic digital operation, the, the K-pop and TikTok brigades wouldn't matter. And you would recognize them instantaneously as for what they are, because you would know that they hadn't bought um, a MAGA hat and a MAGA beer cozy at an event three months ago. Um, 
But what if you just wanted to say that you had a million people ask for tickets? Yeah, but again, then you wouldn't. But I, I guess my they didn't assume that a million people were going to show up. No, they said they just want. But Brad Pascal said a hundred thousand people were going to show up, and uh, so he was off by ninety four thousand, and um, and so that's my only point is is that whatever metric you want to set, they set the expectations for the right. thing, and that was foolish of them, and right, um, and. They did it, if reports are true, in part to cheer up President Trump and promising that you're going to, you know, it's sort of like that scene in Scent of a Woman where the kid promises Al Pacino a ride in a car in a Lamborghini or Ferrari or whatever, and he gets all cheery for a second. But, you know, once it's over, he's suicidal again. And then this, he didn't even get to drive the Ferrari. So, I mean, I just, I think it's a sign of where the campaign's read of itself and of the landscape it's a bad sign for it. That's the only thing I would say is truly significant about it. So in 2008, um, Barack Obama ran a very disciplined campaign. His selection of Joe Biden as a reflection of that. No one was like, ooh, Biden. They were like, yeah, Biden, that's probably right. This will, this will calm down uh, people from Pennsylvania and the upper Midwest who are anxious about a guy named Barack Hussein Obama becoming president after, you know, uh, 36 hours in the U.S. Senate. Um, they were very disciplined. I thought, you, I thought you were going to say for a second there, after 36 hours in the U.S., and I was going to get very, <laughs> I was going to have to chastise you, but go on. I want the long, I want the long form birth certificate. <laughs> I'm still not satisfied. Um, the McCain campaign was utterly undisciplined, veering. And it would depend on who was on the plane with McCain, who was in his, you know, well, it's going to be, think about this. His final choice for his running mate was between a Democrat, Joe Lieberman, and Sarah Palin, the Republicanist Republican of all the Republicans in America, from Alaska, a reformo con governor of the two most diametrically opposed choices. And he was literally down to those two things because McCain was always undisciplined. He was by his own definition, a maverick, and he loved his maverickiness. As it turned out, John McCain was really bad at running for president. Uh, I don't know that any Republican was going to win a third term for the GOP. And I, especially with the economy on fire and sinking to the bottom uh, of the Mariana Trench, I don't think it was a good year for Republicans, but McCain found a way to make it worse. At a, I'm suspending my campaign. Actually, I got to do Letterman real quick, and then I'm suspending <laughs> right after that. His just the 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 litany of of unforced errors that McCain made following his gut. Donald Trump is like John McCain a hundredfold. Right? Why are we going to have the rally? Because I want to have the rally. There are no experts. They have a campaign manager who did not vote in 2016. Right. Brad Parscale didn't vote in 2016. They have no experts, or they have some experts sprinkled through, not very many. And what they're doing, they think, is what they did in 2016 with just a lot more money. What they did in 2016 was they had no campaign to speak of. They never really got it together. The RNC provided sort of a structure for them uh, once they got to the convention, but only at that point. But, you know, Paul Manafort and Corey Lewandowski would not be anybody's idea of the political dream team. Um, but it was Trump's gut. And we're going to do this because I want to do that. Things worked out really well. They worked out really well 
in part because Hillary Clinton ran the worst kind of campaign, which is too stiff, too stuffy, overmannered, wouldn't go to Michigan because they thought it would make them look weak. It was they 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 everything had to go through Brooklyn. It was way overthought. I think what you saw in Tulsa, I think what you see in the president's efforts to drive down turnout, I think what you see in all of this stuff is a lack of political expertise of any kind and a campaign that is arranged around satisfying the whims and urges of its principal, which is a poor reflection both on the principal and on the campaign. Um, well, great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But other than that, um, it's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a fascinating spectacle to watch from afar because you do see people who actually know what they're talking about. Um, Carl Rove, Josh Holmes, um, uh, can't remember who else, but who have sort of agreed to be, have their names on a, on some letterhead, but I suspect it's mostly so that they can say that they have influence on the right. camp, they, they can get your calls placed into into the campaign to their big donor, you know, mocker friends and all that fun. And, and protects them from accusations of insufficient enthusiasm for the revolution. Right. But at the same time, I don't think they're doing anything, right. you know. Um, and uh, uh, Tim Miller actually made a good point the other day saying, maybe someone should ask Carl. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm friendly with Carl. I like Carl. I think he's a smart guy and all that kind of stuff. But maybe someone should ask Carl. So, you know, did did you have notes for the, uh, um, you know, the Battle of Lafayette Park? Um, you know, was that were, were you in on that? You know, and because some of these guys, they kind of want to have it both ways to say that they're they're influencing, they're, they have access to the campaign, but they're not actually responsible for um, this hot mess that we're seeing in front of us. You know, one of the things that you have have helped my thinking with a great deal uh, is how many more questions are prudential ones uh, than I had previously thought. Right. I put too much stock in strategy and ideology uh, than I did on execution. Right. Because so many of the things that we're talking about are not yes or no. They're how much, how little, when, uh, and these are questions of execution, right? And the reality is I know what they meant to do at Lafayette Park. They just couldn't execute it, right? There was no adult in the room who said, have we talked to the uh, rector of this church to see whether he wants us to be there? Have we called the mayor, right? Can you, you can imagine in the Obama administration or the Bush administration or the second half of the Clinton administration, first half of the Clinton administration was an a Arkansas goat rodeo. Oh, it really but was. Once, yeah. But once they calmed down, you can imagine that there would have been an Andy Card-like figure that would have said, before you do that, make sure you call so-and-so and make sure you do this. So the president could have gotten what he wanted, which was a show of strength and support for, for religious expression and done it with a prayer, and it could have been great, but there was no one there to execute, right? There was no one there to do it. The rally, you can have a rally. It's not like uh, those jamokes in Major League Baseball are using their stadiums right now. You could have had a socially distant, super fun, Jimmy Buffett outdoor rally in Anaheim 
or in Arizona. You could have done it spaced out and it could have been a smash hit. And you could have said, look at how responsible and good we are. And at the same time, celebrating the big victory we're going to have. So it wasn't having a rally or it wasn't going to St. John's Church or it wasn't having coronavirus briefings. It was the way that they were executed. And the problem for this president is that he cannot ask you to imagine a different kind of presidency now. When he was running four years ago, he could say, maybe this will be awesome, right? Maybe it will be great. Maybe my instincts will lead us to a good place. And we're sick of the way things are. And we know what we're going to get from Hillary. So let's try something else. Now he can't say it's going to be different because we've seen what he does when asked to execute under difficult circumstances. He has a hard time. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned this because, um, like, you know, I, uh, a million years ago, I was a television producer. And one of the things, uh, you know, we did documentaries, we did a weekly television show, we did a bunch of different stuff, did a lot of location shoots. And one of the only real lasting life lessons I got from being a television producer is that the job of the television producer is just simply to worry about what could go wrong. Like, exactly. Uh, you know, everyone understands what, what could go right, what you want to happen, right? But it's the thinking about, oh crap, what if the light's coming in from the wrong direction? Or what if um, they don't have, if, what if the cables won't reach that spot? Or what if we didn't realize that there was a construction site nearby and there'll be too much noise and a thousand other things? Um, what if this writer that writes beautifully turns out to have a nasal twang that will make dogs bark for five miles? Um, there are all these sorts of things. I mean, that was I learned that lesson from the sainted Nat Glazer, who was, you know, a wonderful intellectual, but there was a reason why you didn't see him on TV all the time. And um, uh, and there are a thousand things like that. And that's one of the really only things that television production and campaigns have a lot in common with each other. Yep. There's a huge amount of overlap, which is one of the reasons why the late, great uh, uh, Roger Ailes could go from one to the other so much because there's so much, you know, production is production value work, thinking about how it will look, how it will be executed, rather than the substance, I mean, which Roger knew understood that stuff too, but there's there's the substance or the the message that you want and then there's the actual act of trying to get it accomplished and in some ways it's like trump is is bad talent right i mean the the talent always wants to screw with the director and say or the or the cameraman say you know you should do it this way or you should do it that way and you know what about getting the, you know more close-ups of me here or whatever it is and sometimes they've got a great instinct for it and sometimes they don't but uh, the lack of execution from the whole presidency. I mean, it's like, right. uh, you know, pulling out of Syria. I'm, I'm open to the idea of pulling out of Syria, but if you were serious about, if you had a Pat Buchanan-like, you know, uh, president who was actually was serious about the ideological agenda, he would have been moving pieces around to do that rather than do it on a whim. And, right. and then undo it, and then half undo it, and then half redo it, and then and then back and forth. Um, Trump, you know, we talk about the the in the Air Force, they talk about the Odo loop. Uh, observe. Uh, what's the D? I can't remember the D. Uh, and then operate. But you are uh, I guess it, maybe it's observe, discern, operate. Uh, some pilot will say what it is, but it's 
the the how tight is your auto loop? How quickly can you see something? Can you figure out what the next step is and then take that plan into action? That is the hallmark of a good campaign. Uh, that is the hallmark of a good producer. That is a hallmark. Of, and we, the, we should say that, that Roger Ailes is late and he was great at television, but he was not so great at being a human being sometimes. I, so. was, I was using great in terms of the great man of history sense of it, which is a capacious phrase. Yes, yes, yes. There is capacity in there. He he, he contained multitudes. Yes. Uh, the, the greatest um, mix of Aristotle and Boss Hogg I ever met. <laughs> that is a perfect perfectly put sir um all right so i had a great publisher uh sam Heinemann at the daily mail in charleston west virginia and he would come through the newsroom and he would ask me if i wanted to go play golf and some days i could and that meant going to lunch playing golf missing work the rest of the day uh and driving everybody home uh after some quantity of jack daniels had been consumed <clears throat> and but most of the time I couldn't because I was a working reporter and he would say, boss, you want to go get you want to go you want to go have lunch? And I would say, no, Sam, I'm covering a capital murder trial uh, at the federal courthouse. It's been on the front page of your newspaper every day. And by the way, how come you get to go to how come you come in here at 10 o'clock every day, leave for lunch at 1130 and don't come back? And he said, boss, they used to pay me for what I do. Now they pay me for what I know. <laughs> And the reality is that you need Carl, you need Carl Rose. You need people who have seen enough campaigns. History doesn't repeat itself, but if you have been around enough times, and you know this, and as you as the dispatch was standing up, you had been around enough startups and you had been around enough uh, publication and you had been around enough that you could detect problems before they presented themselves. Oh, don't do no, 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 no. You don't do that because you, if you do that, such and so will happen and you just want to avoid it. The rejection of expertise by the national right, the nationalist right, as bad, right? These people say expertise is bad. Well, as it turns out, they are, they are engaged in unilateral disarmament against a Democratic Party where Joe Biden is now maybe too much so but for now sort of swimming in experts and 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 their team. That could be a problem later, but for now Trump is uh, has an Odo loop nine miles wide. And so I thought an Odo loop was the special sort of sash belt that the character from D, D Space Nine that looked like John Kerry wore. <laughs> um, that, was, that was Sir Rene Abergeoine, who also played- Chief of Staff and Benson. You got it. You got it. <laughs> Don't you got it. Scoop it. A couple of ladies. Look out, ladies. We are here <laughs> for you tonight. Little little treat for you, Chris and Jonah. Cop into the Benson trivia. <laughs> Benson was a good show. Benson was a very good show. And what was Benson a spinoff from? Benson was a spinoff from. I'll hear the Googling if you cheat. No, I'm not. Uh, Benson was. A, uh, I'm going to say. Also all in the family with the Jeffersons? Wrong. What is it? Benson was the butler in soap. Oh, my gosh. And then uh, he uh, for shame. got his own. For shame, he was the back-talking butler. He was brilliant. He was brilliant. And then I they gave him it. his own show. Um, and his, uh, oh, gosh. Now I'm trying to remember. 
the and the governor that he worked for in Benson, right, was was supposed to be James a Jim, Gatling. Yeah, it was supposed to be like a Jimmy Carter guy. Um, but I want to say that. Well, anyway, we could we could get deep in the weeds here. This is important <laughs> stuff, but we should really save this for premium content for subscribers for paid that's members. Right. Only. It'll cost you extra for us to talk about the interracial love between. Kraus and Benson and uh, how uh, how avant-garde it was for its time. It really was. I mean, it was it was so understated. Um, <laughs> uh, I love the the lady who played Kraus. Uh, Gretchen Kraus was the name of the character, and I think her real name was like Ingus Fenson. And they were like, not good enough. Yeah, no. It was like, why why change this person's <laughs> name? It was it was it's like the the credits on Hawaii Five O. You're like, I would not have known. You could have gone with the original. Yeah, Cam, Cam Fung is Chin Ho. Um, <laughs> So, uh, anyway, uh, we need to move on to some rank punditry and, um, uh, so actually I have a, I have a, just a straight up polling question for you. Okay. So as you were saying again yesterday on the Brett Bear podcast and, um, as lots of people pointing out, you know, Trump is down in the suburbs, right? He's down with women. Um, He's 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 taken a bit of a hit with oldsters, but not as not as big, but significant and worrisome. Um, a hit with independence and all these kinds of things. If he's taken all of these hits, how come his approval ratings are still basically where they've always been? I mean, he, he, he at some point you would think you keep losing different parts of your coalition without making it up elsewhere that your overall your top line numbers would go down more, and yet he still seems frozen in the same range. What, well, what's going on? He, he, well, first of all, it, it, the, the received wisdom about his uh, titanium floor is true, but it can be over. Uh, it can it can be overinterpreted. Um, Trump is at the low end of his range. Sometimes he gets up forty five, forty six. Uh, in his approval rating, but he has lately been at 41, 42, 40. So that's when we're talking about an electorate of, oh, you know, a lot, a lot. Of, I, I, I'm, I'm wrestling very much right now with how big I think the electorate is going to be. Um, but we're talking about millions of people anyway. Um, so that's a lot of people, but also th this election will be one uh, if Donald Trump wins the election, it will be because people who do not approve of the way that he does his job as president vote for him anyway. He needs people who think, I don't approve of the way you do your job, but I'm still going to vote for you instead of Joe Biden. Those are lots of those are lots and lots of people. So Trump's ceiling for the let's say that Trump's ceiling for the national popular vote is 47 or 48 percent. That means he's going to draw in a lot of voters who say, yeah, I'm not into it. And here we're talking three points, maybe four points, maybe. Say, I'm not really into the way you do it, but I can't vote. I can't have the other guy be president. So I'm going to vote for you. <coughs> Excuse me. Those are the conditions that Trump is trying to create. He's trying to create those conditions because he's trying to get the circus going in the full blown way. What about me? Oh, yeah. What about you? What did he say? What did I say? The back and forth. Right. Um, he wants to fight about statues. He wants to fight about uh, things that he doesn't have any control over, things that Biden doesn't have any control over. 
what the mayor of Richmond, Virginia wants to do is not a matter of presidential purview, is not a part of the presidential purview. So he wants culture wars. He wants back and forth. And he and he thinks he wants low turnout. Um, Trump had. Let me see. I wrote this down for you. Um, so Trump had in his election, 56 percent turnout. Uh, the high since 1968 was 58% uh, for Obama in 2008. Uh, the high, the, mo- the high sense universal suffrage uh, was 63%. And that was during, of course, uh, and that was in 1960 when you had the, the high, the high years for us uh, voter turnout were at the point the the struggle over civil rights not only got, Black voters to vote at, in higher numbers, but it also got racists to vote in higher numbers because they were concerned. 60, 60, 64 was pretty low turnout, relatively speaking, and 68 is really high. The low turnout of, of the universal suffrage era is 49% in 1996. Trump is trying to drive turnout down, and now you hear Republicans openly talking about their desire for a low turnout election. Because the mythology of the Republican Party says that Republicans benefit in low turnout years. This is an an example of the stuff we were talking about before. There is no evidence that this is true at all. Trump wants to to crush the mail-in ballots because they're afraid of high turnout. And they think if there's a high turnout year that he'll lose. And he wants a low sort of squalid election like the one of 2016 where people are not you know, motivated by fear more than they are joy. Um, and he, at Matt Schlapp's line from 2016, which is one of the funniest things said in politics, it's a race to the bottom, and I think we can win it. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, that's the election Trump thinks that he wants, and he thinks that low turnout is part of that. But there is a huge body now of research uh, particularly from Darren Shaw and his colleague, Darren Shaw of the University of Texas, who is one of our pollsters, uh, that makes it clear there is no correlation between the size of the electorate uh, and any advantage for either party. But Trump believes that that's so. And because he and some guys who remember hearing their dad talk about whether it was raining in Philadelphia being determinative of uh, whether the Republicans were going to win, have decided that they're going to wage war on mail-in ballots uh, that they're going to try to and aim for a low turnout election, and it's just not supported by anything. So, all very interesting, seriously. And, uh, and one of the things I always try to tell people, which I think is fascinating, is you know there's this, there's this almost you know it's not Marxist, it's a, but it's 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 got the the effulgent aroma of Marxist having re- Marxism having recently been in the room. Um, uh, argument that if every single voter were forced to vote, it would always be good for the left because there's this idea that the lumpen proletariat that hasn't reached its class consciousness lurks out there in the shadows. And if he made them all vote, they would vote their interests and it would bring in the Green New Deal and and renewable. How's that that working in Australia where it's illegal not to vote? Yeah, no, which is nuts. I mean, I'm against it in principle, but uh, every, every time I ever ask a real political scientist about this, they say, yeah, no. The research basically shows that it would maybe swing the results differently about 1% because you just think about it in terms of um, polling. If, if a sample, if a well-done sample of 2,000 people can tell you what 320 million people 
are thinking, then a sample of 100 million people should be pretty accurate, too. Right. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, people say, oh, that's a bad sample. It only has 500 in it. Okay, how about 100 million voters? And um, that doesn't well, mean with Electoral College and different areas that activating certain parts of a coalition doesn't matter. But in the grand aggregate of things, this idea that the people not voting are all disproportionately on one side or another just isn't true. So I, the, low, the lowest turnout election of the modern era was the worst showing for Republicans since uh, 1964. It was Bob Dole in 1996. Low turnout is not good for Republicans any more than high turnout is good for Democrats. It depends on the candidates. It depends on the year. There is a uh, folk uh, mythology that has uh, grown up around these attitudes and these ideas that carry over from you know, the last hurrah days and the old machine politics days and all of that stuff. And I, I understand why it's there, but these are damaging myths for Republicans because they're acting on them. And again, there, there's no Karl Rove at the table to say, look, here's the data. This is what it says. We should embrace mail-in voting in, to make sure that we get as much out of it as we can. It's like when uh, Republicans in early voting was hilarious for years. No early voting. We want no early vote. Don't you early vote. And I kept thinking, why don't you tell your people to go vote early? You might get some more votes. You might get some more votes if you tell them to go vote early. We don't like early voting. So Republicans, instead of giving themselves 20 days to get their voters to the polls, gave themselves one day. Uh, and it, they were acting out of some misguided mix of principle and myth. And it cost them, I'm sure it cost them seats over the years. Um, However, I, you, you seem to have run with the ball away from my original, original question. So I just, I, I, just, <laughs> I, I want to swing back. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an issue of actual curiosity to me. I mean, it's like, okay. so you, I think you said yesterday that, the, that Trump is down like 20 points in the burbs or something like so, that. So half of the electorate live, lives in the suburbs. Right. Uh, in 2016, it was 49% according to exit polls. We'll have Fox News voter analysis for the first time in a quadrennial this year, so we'll get an even better, more accurate number. But let's roughly say it's about half of the electorates in the suburbs, and then uh, the city is a third. Cities are a third. Uh, I'll do the math wrong here, but it's more urban than rural. But basically, city uh, cities and and the countryside splitting up the other half. So okay, so and and. Trump narrowly won suburbs. Five points. Right. Five points okay, five is points pretty good. So yeah. how, how he can be, if, if, if his approval number basically stays stable, but right. he, how, how can it stay stable if he is down 20 points among half the electorate that he won in 2016? I mean, it just seems that you should. Uh, well, he's losing in, in the poll. He's down 12 points. I mean, <laughs> there, 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 there's a, uh, there's a lot of ruin uh, in a candidacy, in a, in a candidacy, but uh, there's a limit, and that's how you get to be down ten or twelve points, is that you're down twenty two points in the suburbs, and Biden is just stomping his head. Democrats had their best year in a in a biennial uh, for the House in. Uh, 2018, because they just ran the table in all of these suburban districts. The suburb, so we're, we're watching the coalitional change 
where the Republicans are putting together the New Deal coalition without black voters, not a winning coalition. Uh, and the Democrats are putting together basically the Eisenhower coalition, which is affluent, college-educated white people and uh, uh, the majority of minorities. And that's a bet. You'd rather have you'd rather have Eisenhower's coalition than you would LBJ's minus black voters. And that's basically what they have. So the Republicans can't afford. There has been this idea among Republicans. I had I had a conversation with a member of Congress not too long ago who was explaining to me why it was important that Republicans do better with rural voters and small town voters. And I said, you can't do any better you're there, right? There's the one cranky guy uh, who wears a Greenpeace sweatshirt when he goes to the feed store. And that's the guy, right? He's he's the only one. And you're not going to win him over because he is getting in his Subaru with his sandals on and driving away from you when you come at him with a clipboard. And let's face it, I don't like that guy. I love that guy. That guy <laughs> is all right. That guy is all right. He always has a good dog. He does have a good dog. A bandana. But it turns out uh, that he's actually not from around there. He's a retired orthodontist <laughs> from New Rochelle, and he's gentrifying these places by sprucing up these barns so that they can host gay marriages. And, I, you know, what I don't know. Anyway. That, well, I, hey, by the way, by the way, by the way, two things. Your Bigfoot erotica guy uh, out. I know. For... for uh, for officiating a gay wedding between two of his staffers. What if it had been gay big feet? Ah. What if it had been a wedding between, is it big feet or big foots? I, I, there's a great schism on this. Yeah, uh, yeah, huge. I, I am a, I'm a big feet man myself. So I, if, if it had been gay big feet, uh, would that have been also the worst? Would, would they have thrown him out or would they just take this in under the big, the Bigfoot erotica exemption. I don't know. Well, or what if it was, I mean, you know, what, what, what two big feet do in the privacy of their privacy own Privacy of their own home. Yeah. Is, 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 but <laughs> of their, of their own thatched roof hovel, uh, among the great pines. But what, I don't know. But what if it was an intermarriage? What if it was, you know, a lady and a Bigfoot? Well, or, or a man okay. and a Bigfoot, male, male, Bigfoot. I mean, I, who's to judge Whoa. here, but you know, I mean, <laughs> The, the 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 uh the geometry starts to get pretty interesting on that one i don't know well but also you're reducing the dangers of uh sort of coming up with an interspecies hybrid that could rule the earth right? and that's we're, we're always we're always just one uh chianti fueled camping trip away from the su the super race of human bigfoots that will take over the world and maybe we will remember uh this congressman uh, as as the as the foreteller of the of the race of our maybe conference. we could actually call the new spinoff syncretic hybrid species the Riggleman the Riggleman yes the Riggleman I like it and I'll tell you look I mean if we if we did end up having to have a new Homo sapien versus like Homo sapien Neanderthal war but with the Rigglemans yeah, the yeah, one yeah. thing the Rigglemans would have over us is that they wouldn't ever need to use keeps. Okay, so for those of you who don't understand the reference, uh, you know, Dan Riggleman was this congressman who apparently was much more sincerely interested in Bigfoot erotica than I was. I was just interested that the phenomenon existed, and I've been tagged with it ever since as being an aficionado. And I often get very upset because people say I'm a fan of uh, Bigfoot porn, which is very different than erotica. Porn and erotica being different things, as I often say, it's like, the difference between uh, erotic and kinky. Erotic, you use a feather. Kinky, you use the whole chicken. 
Um, and so anyway, be that as it may, the joke here is, is that a hybrid species of Bigfoot and human would, of course, not need to worry about going bald. But that's not true for a lot of the rest of us, which is why I want to talk to you about keeps. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left, which is true. And the great thing about keeps is that you don't have to go to the doctor's office. You can do this from the privacy of your own home. Um, you know, it used to be you had to go to this embarrassing uh, meeting at the doctor to get a prescription. Now, thanks to keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits, particularly important in the time of a pandemic. Keeps also offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Finally, again, prevention is key. Keeps treatments can take up to four to six months or more to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month, plus for a limited time, you can get your first month free. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash dingo for your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash dingo. We thank Keeps for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Uh, all right, let's change gears. You, okay. you my friend, are a, uh, a proud son of West Virginia. True. Um, southerner, I think. Nope, 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 nope. No? West Virginia is not a southern state. Okay, see, I was, I was testing here because it depends who you talk to about these kinds of things, right? No? No, you, you, no, no, no West Virginian would claim that West Virginia is a southern state. What would you claim it as? It is an Appalachian state. Um, you have... Are no the, Appalachian states southern states? I would say Tennessee. I would say, so the Appalachian belt basically goes from western Pennsylvania uh, down, and I, I would take it over into the Ozarks. I would take it across the Mississippi River, but some would say take it to Memphis. So obviously there are parts of Appalachia that are Southern states. So Tennessee, uh, North Georgia, Northern Alabama, um, Western Virginia, uh, Western South Carolina, Piedmont areas. There are parts of those that are in Southern states, but Appalach West Virginia is the only state that is entirely within Appalachia. Um, but I don't think of Kentucky as a Southern state. Um, I do think, uh, I don't think of Arkansas strictly as a Southern state, even though it did join the, Ar Arkansas is a tough question because it joined the Confederacy. Um, but wasn't much, it, that was all part of the slavers Western expansion mode and about all that cotton that they thought they were going to grow from coast to coast. But West Virginia is an Appalachian state. It's as much Midwestern as it is Southern. Um, and it is, it is a thing of its, it's, it is a thing of its own. It was a state that didn't, that not only didn't join the Confederacy, left Virginia over Virginia's joining the Confederacy. Right. Okay. So it's, 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 it's the platypus of states. 
It's a mammal. <laughs> I think, it lays I eggs. Think we're a little, I think we're a little more gainly than a platypus. <laughs> a little more, not, 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 not the webbed. You can't call us the, the egg-laying, web-footed freak of the central Appalachians. Although I'll tell you, apparently, as as the uh, no less of an authoritative source than an Animal Planet thing I once saw about the world's <laughs> deadliest. Most most painful stinging animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The venom, serious the, venom. The okay, platypus, I'll take the platypus. Platypus sting hurts a lot because it attacks your nervous system and and it's apparently really awful. Um, okay, I'll buy that. Uh, I, before I get to what I actually wanted to talk about, I, I should mention also. So years ago, before I met the lovely uh, and talented and fair Jessica, my wife, uh, the, I dated a very nice lady who was living for work in Arkansas for a while, and I would visit her quite often. And, uh, and because I like to go on long road trips and drive around, I mean, a buddy of mine would sometimes do that kind of stuff. I picked up, I would go to like, back when there was things like bookstores, I would get like regional travel guides, Fromers, this, that kind of thing. And I noticed that the guide to the West, the guide to the South, the guide to the Southeast, the guide to the Southwest, (laughs) the Midwest, no one claimed Arkansas. It was... It was the redheaded stepchild of states, and it was amazing. It was like, it was the one state that no region wanted. Um, and, and in and by the way, in the political typology of America, Arkansas proved very challenging for a long time. Uh, it was a so we can think of. We were talking before about the the New Deal coalition. The poor poor mountainous states were the were the most enthusiastic New Deal places, right? There is a town in West Virginia called Eleanor for Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, Arkansas was, and now so you have the Dust Bowl and those states to the West, which came in huge for Roosevelt and and everything that was done for them in the Dust Bowl. But Arkansas, West Virginia, uh, Kentucky, and Tennessee, the TVA, uh, Appalachia was a huge, huge Democrat. Robert Byrd was not uh, the, uh, you know, who was roommates with Cicero, uh, was not the senator from West Virginia for a million years for no reason. Um, And the political typography, so Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas, uh, Arkansas, I think uh, Hillary Clinton lost Arkansas by 20 points. The amount of a shift there as Arkansas has become part of the, it has, the, the region has flipped so completely and the places that were the strongest for FDR are now the places that are the strongest for Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So I was wondering where, where do you come down on um, the um, tidal wave of uh, sort of the great awakening iconoclasm? Oh. <sighs> well, I, one, I, one of the things that I was thinking the other day. Somebody was talking about how they're going to take down Teddy Roosevelt's statue uh, at the uh, Natural History Museum in New York. Yes, which makes me very cross. I grew up grew up three or four blocks from that statue. I went on maybe half my school field trips were basically to that museum because my school was about two blocks away. Um, and Better than a film strip. Better... Zinc and you, partners in freedom, uh, which is one of my favorite film strips from The Simpsons. Uh, anyway, yes, so it was better than a film strip. It was pretty awesome. Um, but I joked, uh, I said, well, you know, they never tear down any statues of anybody I care about because they never build any statues to anybody I care. The Coolidge statues uh, are safe. Uh, I would have never put up a statue to Teddy Roosevelt, uh, let alone uh, 
tore one down. I, and so speaking as a citizen, as a person, um, I, they're not taking down anything that relates to me because I don't live any place where they're taking anything down. Um, I'm not a participant now in West Virginia. There's been a long run and I don't even know if it's still up. There's a statue of Stonewall. There was for a long time, a statue of Stonewall Jackson on the opposite side of the Capitol from Lincoln. Uh, there's a beautiful statue of Lincoln in front of the Capitol in West Virginia uh, that is taken from Rachel Lindsay's Abraham Lincoln Walks at Midnight. He's wearing sort of a, a cloak, and it's this, it's a beautiful piece. But they had Stonewall Jackson, who is from what is now West Virginia on the other side, and there's a big park in West Virginia named for Stonewall Jackson, which is weird to name something for somebody who would hate the very existence of West Virginia uh, seceding as it did from Virginia. So I guess that's part of it. I don't have strong feelings about it. I think Stonewall Jackson, I don't think he was a particularly slaverific guy. I think he was probably a good general. He was a weird person. He was an enthusiastic Presbyterian. I don't know whether it needs to go or not. But I do think that cities and towns are allowed to take down statues if they want to take down their statues. They put them up, they can take them down. The idea that the people of Richmond, Virginia should pay to clean pigeon poop off of a 20-foot-tall statue of that cur dog Jefferson Davis, the incompetent, war-thirsty, ignorant, poor, poor, poor form Jefferson Davis, this guy who kept the Civil War going for an extra month. If I'm living in Richmond, I'm like, I don't want to see that, and I don't want to pay for that. And to me, that's not about history. I think one of the problems that we're having— But just to pause you there, because I'm doing this on your behalf— because okay. I, I suspect that some people listening will say, well, what about the mobs tying ropes around statues and yanking well, that, them down? That's what I was going to say. Okay. So how you do it matters, right? You go through the city council. I, I saw the tragic scene uh, with the last conquistador in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, where there, the mob comes to pull down the statue. The mob arrives to defend the statue, and guess what happened? Somebody got shot. That's what's going to happen. That's why we have government. That's why we don't. That's why we don't do things by mob. And no mob should be pulling any statue down anywhere. That should, if, if you want to remove the statue, you should be going through. It's not. It's not like the Boston Tea Party where you have no representation and there's no one to listen to you. There's a lot of people who want to listen to you, and uh, and I guarantee you. It's not like the mayor of Memphis said, no, 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 let me stand up on behalf of the Nathan Bedford Forest statue, right? No, these mayors are eager to oblige. Uh, the governors are eager to oblige in, in cases of these Confederates. But my, con- uh, my bigger concern even than these mobs, because the mobs will burn themselves out because people will tire of the frenzy, right? Um, and that's the risk with all of the BLM stuff that when the people go too far, on these issues, it will engender the snapback and the their cause will be harmed rather than helped. What concerns me is the unwillingness of individuals who want to defend all statues and all naming of everything for all time, saying that it shouldn't be changed. It is different to take down a statue of Jefferson Davis than it is to take down a statue of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Or U.S. Grant. Or U.S. Grant. And what I what I notice a lot is that people say, oh, they're like, what do they say? They're like the Taliban. They're they're just they're destroying graven images. You have to be able to say. If the citizens of Richmond want to take down Jefferson Davis, that's fine. If they do it the right way, 
But if they come for George Washington, will you defend George Washington? Um, you don't want, no one wants to defend Jefferson Davis. No, at least outside of neo-Confederates. No one wants to defend Jefferson Davis. But who will defend Thomas Jefferson? I will. I will defend Thomas Jefferson. I will say that Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner and a slave diddler and a he was the original limousine liberal, good for me, but not for thee. Thomas Jefferson was all of those things, but he was also the author of the most important sentence in political history that I am aware of. Uh, he is also the author of the Charter of uh, Liberties for Virginia. He is also the guy who took together eight or 10 strains of the Enlightenment and wove them into one with the help of others, particularly Ben Franklin, but wove them into one cogent view. Uh, and he was a he was a pretty good president. So Jefferson Davis should be honored, or not Jefferson Davis, Thomas Jefferson should be honored for his accomplishments. Washington should be honored for his accomplishments. Uh, and we have to be willing to put our feet in the fire on this stuff and say, who, yeah, I'll, I'll fight for this guy, but I'm not going to fight for that guy. Yeah, I, I generally agree with all of that. Um, and I think, you know, what is required in all of this are, is the willingness to make important distinctions. And there's a well-established finding in the social science literature that says angry mobs of nihilists aren't much interested in making distinctions. Um, and so, like, the, the Confederate statues that went up in the 1960s to protest the Civil Rights Act, you know, get rid of those things. You know, um, that, was, that was just the middle finger to, you know, uh, to black people seeking their rights in this country. And, I, uh, you know, that stuff was petulant and nasty. There are some things where I, where I slightly differ is there are some things that, as the most Burkean line from Animal House says, have a long tradition of existence. And, <laughs> um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, for 2,000 years, it was um, a standing order in the Jewish community in Rome that... Uh, any Jew who walked through the Arch of Titus would be excommunicated from Judaism because that the Arch of Titus, among other things, celebrated the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And um, But no Jewish person called for it being torn down or smashed or anything like that. And that ban was in effect, I think, until 1996 or something like that. When they sort of, after the founding of, you know, Israel gets created and they, they worked it out, is my point. And right. um, I think there is nothing wrong with having things from your past around that remind you that history is complicated. And, um, and being able to make some of these distinctions is worthwhile. I agree. You don't want, like, Nathan Bedford Forrest, I mean, come on. Um, you know, there are things that, you can make meaningful distinctions about, but like, should Washington and Lee get rid of the Lee? Um, you know, there are things that you just, you sort of have to live with. And um, I know that you're not a Teddy Roosevelt guy, but you know, the thing about Teddy Roosevelt is that that statue isn't about him being president. It's about him being like the creator of the natural museum of natural history. And right. he was what, I mean, there, it, Teddy Roosevelt was, by definition, a badass, 
And I have all sorts of problems with him, particularly his post-presidency. But, you know, when he was president of the United States, he was such a foremost expert on animal taxonomy that they, the museum would send him samples of newly discovered birds and other animals that he would lay the skeletons or the carcass out on his desk in the Oval Office to identify them because the guys at the museum couldn't do it. That's cool, you know, and like his role in all of that, and it's his museum, seems to me like, you know, if, I, if, if, if you wanted to make a concession, okay, get rid of the black guy and the Native Americans walking alongside Roosevelt, but leave the actual statue that became famous from Night in the Museum up there. Um, and, but so I'm, I, I'm just generally with you. I just, I have, um, but, but see, that's, that's a, a perfect example. You're a New Yorker. That library matters to you. And you like Teddy Roosevelt or yeah. like him more than I, I hate him. So everybody Fair likes enough. Teddy I mean, Roosevelt. What, what, is, what is your big beef with Teddy Roosevelt? Well, he's a lunatic. Um, oh, okay. Fair, fair. He's a, he is a, uh, his, his new nationalism that he that uh, he framed his 1912 uh, suicide mission for president was crazy, was full-blown progressive, La Follette plus progressivism. You don't have to tell me this. I know this, but he he lost. I mean... He, he gave us Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, his arrogance knew no bounds. When yeah. he was president, he would... He came up with everything from the calisthenic uh, routine for the midshipmen that he wanted them to follow. When he left office as president, when he gave Taft the presidency, and he believed that he had bequeathed it to him, he left something like 1,200 pieces of legislation that he wanted the Congress to enact uh, after his departure. He was a... Uh, he's He won a Nobel Peace Prize for a war he basically started. He goaded the Japanese into war with the Russians. Uh, he was so racist, his, his belief about the Japanese as the white people of Asia and convinced the Japanese that they should be hegemon in the region uh, as the Europeans were in their part of the world because the Japanese were like the white people of Asia and that they needed to up their military style. So he, of course, planted the seeds for the Second World War. Teddy Roosevelt was a busybody. He was a budinsky. He was a bigot. He, he was all of this stuff. And he, he wreathed all of it in the kind of crazy, monomaniacal, uh, his speech that he gave to the throng that assembled around him. So n nobody went to the conventions in those days. In 1912, no, uh, certainly Taft didn't go to the convention. Uh, it was in Chicago, but Roosevelt, decided, he was angry that he was not getting what he wanted. Roosevelt was angry a lot. He was angry almost all the time, like all of these despotic tendency guys are. So Roosevelt goes out to Chicago and summons the people to him. Now, most of his supporters were from the West. They were progressives from the West who wanted the things that he was promising, universal health coverage, all of this other stuff. So they assemble. The speech that he gives to the, the mob that has surrounded him at the hotel, and he's out on the balcony, is Mussolini-y. And, and it's the Battle of Armageddon is at hand, and it's all of this stuff. I have no interest or taste in Roosevelt. Now, if I had gone to that uh, museum as a kid, and if I had uh, fonder feelings for Roosevelt than I do, I would defend the statue. 
And I would, as a New Yorker, I would say, this is stupid. And I think that this museum, as a public good uh, in the city of New York, should keep this because this is something I want my grandchildren to see. And it, it matters to me. That's a good discussion to have. A good discussion to have is, I think Teddy Roosevelt should stay. Uh, or I think I can see how Virginians would make a great argument for um, Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was a noble man who fought for a doomed cause and after his defeat urged his fellow Virginians to lay down not only their arms, but their resentments against the Union. He would have been so appalled when they decorated his tomb in Lexington with the Confederate battle flag because he came to abhor that symbol. And he became a strong advocate of unity. He became a strong advocate of union and all of that stuff. So there's an argument that Southerners could make about Robert E. Lee, uh, but I'm not a Southerner and I don't live in Virginia. I went to college in Virginia, but I don't live in Virginia and I don't have any particular claim to make on it. Yeah, so I mean, I, I we should, we'll circle back one day to, to, to Teddy Roosevelt because <laughs> I am, so, I'm a Coolidge man. I'm a Taft man. I am a Coolidge man. I am a Taft man. Um, I, uh, completely agree that the worst thing that Teddy Roosevelt did to the United States of America was give us Woodrow Wilson, who was the worst president in American history. Um, but, uh, um, his- and by the way, I should also just say, I find it interesting. It's sort of like when they came after the Wilson school at Princeton, uh, that with Teddy Roosevelt progressives now coming after their own. Teddy Roosevelt was every progressive's favorite Republican. He was the progressive Republican president. And he was also the father of the national parks and all of this stuff that they love. And, and Robert Redford makes gravelly voiced, uh, sl- slow paced documentaries about and all those things. And now even he's got to go. Yeah. So, and part of my rage is in all of this is that I'm willing to have the argument that you want to have about Teddy Roosevelt. But why? like Negan from The Walking Dead, you would pick out Teddy Roosevelt from the right. crowd instead of Woodrow Wilson to bash their head in, bothers me greatly because- But don't, but don't you suppose that the board, and I know nothing about the backstory here, but don't you suppose that the board at the Na- Museum of Natural History wanted to take suggestions and be woker, and then somebody made the suggestion, well, I've always been kind of offended that Teddy Roosevelt, who was a, a, a colonialist, uh, that that his statue is out front, and I think that's not inclusive. And then it just carried a weight of its own, and no one. And and that's sort of, of what's happening in a lot of places now. Suggestions get started, and there's no one to stand up and say, "No, on the merits, I'm here to defend why I think Teddy Roosevelt ought to be there." Instead, people are afraid to say, "No, I think that's a bad idea," because the the um, social justice imperative. Uh, and intersectionality, bingo, leave people feeling not empowered to make uh, good arguments in, in favor of things they think are good. Yeah, so look, I mean, as, as the theme song from that great uh, uh, Different Strokes spinoff said, you take the good, you take the bad, and there you have the facts of life. And <laughs> you, take them, you take them both, you and take there them you both. have the facts of life. And um, uh, your point about Jefferson, I think is exactly right, is that, you you're not gonna you should not tear down the Jefferson Memorial on the Mall partly because it has a long history of existence, but partly because it was built not to honor his slaveholding. It was right. built to honor these ideas that he laid the groundwork for. Um, Teddy Roosevelt's statue was not to honor his uh, you know Bugs Buddy like. If I had a pink tomato nose, I would go to war with Russia. 
um, stuff. Um, it was to honor his dedication to science and nature and conservation and all of that kind of thing. And I think you can, so you'll like this. So my, my, my mom on her mom's side goes way back, like Mayflower-y kind of back. I don't know if it was the actual Mayflower, but back. And she had this great needlepoint family tree that went up to like, I don't know, 1870, whoever knit it. And, and it had the different names on the, it was a, it was a beautifully needlepointed tree with the names of the different people in the family on it going up in chronological order. And someone scratched out the birth date <laughs> of one of the women because she didn't want anyone to know her real age. So great. <laughs> and my so great. is like some of this stuff you have to know about your own past. I, you know, the idea of going around Rome and or Europe and knocking down the statues of everybody who was a murderer, you know, and replacing it with but some abstract you, art, it would be insane to me. And but we you have, can take down Stalin and you can take down sure. Lenin and you can put them in a park yeah. so people can go walk. I'm not saying that Jefferson Davis's statue should be, I, I'm not saying what they should, people of Richmond should do whatever they want. I, and I, by the way, think a big part of this falls into the same category as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone and a bunch of other stuff that doesn't matter, that is not even a national issue. It's not, not only is it not a national problem, it's not even a national issue. Uh, I don't care whether the people who live in Seattle have seven blocks full of uh, people playing hacky sack and stinking. That's their, that's their, that's their problem. That's not my problem. Uh, I don't live in Seattle. Uh, and I think the statue thing is a phenomenon. Yes, I think there is a very important discussion to be had about the larger movement, about the unnaming of names and the scratching out of the dates and 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 all of that. I think that's really the 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 whitewashing of history is a big problem, and that's a larger discussion that we should have culturally. But Richmond can do what Richmond wants yeah, yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I agree with that. I mean, there's a great just to close this portion out. Um, there's a great it's not a GIF. It's a meme, whatever. It's a thing uh, that a friend of mine sent me. And it's, uh, 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 we can bleep language on this podcast. Uh, it has the statue of William Penn, which is on top of some very tall building in Philadelphia. And it's just on top of like a dome, you know, yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. whatever. And it just says William, William Penn saying, come at me, mother. <laughs> like, there's just no way a mob is going to get that thing down um good, good luck all right so uh you know we were talking about scratching out dates and like hiding from the past uh these days there are a lot of people who want to sort of hide themselves from the present and and one of the great tools for that is expressvpn being stuck at home these days you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network Fire up incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong, wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history and all of those web pages about Bigfoot erotica, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP, that's internet service provider, can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared 
among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless other parties. So if you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com remnant, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show. Watch what shows you want because, you know, you can do all this streaming stuff that's really cool on ExpressVPN. And protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. I actually wasn't entirely joking about the uh, ExpressVPN thing. I mean, because you were saying before about how, um, you know, these are all regional kind of things. I will say, and, and this is every bit as much a criticism of Fox News as it is oh boy. of MSNBC or CNN, um, as well as Twitter, and really about 95% of our colleagues in this business, which is that, um, and of the Trump campaign, and of... Eventually, the Biden campaign will do something like this, too. Maybe they already have it. I'm just forgetting. But of taking these discrete local things and saying this is how they want this whole country to be like, right? I mean, when Trump, I mean, to take the most cartoonish version of it, which I think is a weird political pitch from Trump, he's saying, you know, if you don't reelect me, what they have in the in the chaz or the chop is going to be what America is like. It's going to be anarchy, you know, cats and dogs sleeping together, you know, people ripping off mattress tags and, um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's why you have to look, well, first of all, that's happening right now, right? I mean, so if he's the guy who can stop it, why isn't he stopping it? But second of all, it's sort of, you know, going back to the perennial uh, drag queen story hour. Yeah. You know, like, so there's a story about a library in Sacramento and um, that has Drag Queen Story Hour. Don't like Drag Queen Story Hour. Don't support Drag Queen Story Hour. And you have a writer, you have writers, a handful of writers in New York who are very, very, very angry about something that's going on 2,500 miles away and make it seem as if it's happening in every single community around the country. And the coverage that you get of a lot of local things is, I mean, this is the great irony of social media and national cable news and stuff is that everyone's freaking out about how either we don't want nationalism or we do want nationalism without recognizing that we've actually nationalized our culture already. And it, treating and CHOP as if it's like a national story is, is part of the problem. So outrage is our addiction. We have an outrage culture that is fulminating constantly, and it's a real sickness. And we have a lot of problems uh, as it relates to the way demagoguery 
has so infected our politics. There's a lot of things, you know, I'm a, a big fan of abolishing primary elections. There, I could go down a list of things, the uh, reverse, the uh, repeal the 17th Amendment. I have a list of things that you could do that would make politics better. But a lot of this is a media function, right? If we're going to be honest, a lot of this is politicians uh, going where, fishing where the fish are. And so here's here's what happened. We had a uh, ossified media world uh, after the Second World War. Um, you know, Brookheiser talks about the bubble, uh, Pearl Harbor to midway through Vietnam. And we formed this, television was new, but immediately became powerful because it is so powerful. So you have three television networks, basically three or four newspapers, and then two or three wire services that sketch out what Americans are hearing, watching, reading, listening to. Um, and it was liberally biased. Um, but that was less important because what was more important was that every town had a couple of newspapers, right? Every town had left columnists, right columnists, had competing newspapers, had a morning newspaper, had an afternoon newspaper, and the emphasis was in that paper, right? You are old enough to remember a time where being on TV was important because it was emotionally significant, but the paper was where people got news, right? The paper was the driving force of what people read and understood. So we had, so newspapers got 32% profitability. You could borrow money for a newspaper. Uh, you know, a, a guy with two turtles in a knapsack could have gone and borrowed m money to buy a newspaper because the profits were guaranteed. The internet shows up. Newspapers go from hyper-dominant to dead in about five years. And we have not filled that vacuum with anything. What we filled the vacuum, oh, no, I'm sorry. I wish we had filled it with nothing. Uh, <laughs> We have filled the vacuum with clickbait. You won't believe what this redneck in Texas said about Obama. Click, 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 click. You won't believe what this dirty hippie scum said about <laughs> President Trump in the chairs. Click, 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 click. And it's like, no, I believe it. I believe people say stupid things. I think it's, I'm sure it's true that there are bigots and that there are uh, Wokeivists, and that there's all kinds of stupidity taking place in a nation of 325 million people. You are bound to have some genuine dummies. And by the way, when Joe Biden said uh, that he thought that there were, what did he say? He said there's 10% that are bad people. Uh, based on what I've been watching lately, I think he may have been shooting low on that guy. <laughs> I think the over, you know, overwhelming majority of Americans are good, well intentioned people who just want to live their lives, right? They want to work hard and do their jobs. But we have a media landscape has grown up in the digital age after the demise of newspapers. Local news is almost impossible to find in a lot of places, right? You take a, a newspaper like the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which was once a titan, right? And cities across the country, medium-sized cities across the country had amazing newspapers with hundreds of reporters doing this stuff. Cleveland Plain Dealer is now like 12 people. And without local news, the energy goes into national news and the national news uh, thrives on an outrage culture in which Americans are asked to hate or Americans antipathies towards each other are antagonized for the purpose of a poor revenue structure 
uh, which is one of the reasons I love the dispatch and that I am very pleased to be a dispatch subscriber because the current model won't work for news. Um, I'm sorry, I, I wanted to give some air to that so that <laughs> when, when in post-production they have the space they need to have the cheering throngs <sighs> die down appropriately. Um, Subscribe today. Uh, to the extent you can, without a cartoon anvil falling on you um, uh, from your overlords at Fox or the floor opening up and you falling down into a pit of tigers or something like that. Um, uh, or maybe sort of like Will Ferrell where the fire jets don't go off and you just start talking I'm about... I'm hurt very badly. Please <laughs> help me. It's starting to smell like almonds. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so uh, uh, what do you think cable television news looks like in five years from now? Well, I have no fear of anvils <clears throat> or tiger pits. Um, I think five years is pretty soon. I think the long term tells me that the, the platform will matter almost nothing, right? I think the in let's say in intensifying. So cable as a platform, we know it's it's no secret uh, that there's been cord cutting and that 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 people are doing things differently. Uh, Fox is incredibly profitable. It's incredibly successful. It's incredibly incredible. Um, <clears throat> but we, you know, it's 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 no secret about what the trends are in terms of how people get uh, information and entertainment. Uh, I think the, the future, I think Jeff Bezos bought the Washington post for, I'm sure a lot of reasons, uh, to impress his hot weather lady girlfriend, or no, wait, she's a helicopter pilot. Uh, uh yes, I'm getting a right. nod. Yeah. Yes. From a producer. I, yes. You make it sound like those two things can be mutually exclusive. Cause you could do better as a, as a hot lady helicopter pilot. You could do great weather from up there. You could. Good. Uh, you're closer to the weather. Um, I think Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, uh, not just as a prestige thing in Washington, but because it's going to be a brand that 20 years from now, people will say, oh, I recognize that. That's Washington. That's news. That's I know what that is. And I think the, the future, and I think this is one of the things that in all the Black Lives Matter discussion, people are kind of overlooking. The future belongs to the brands, right? Uh, and your ability to say to whether they're watching it on their Roku or their, however people are consuming it um, in all of these different ways, the brand will be the thing that will matter. And I think that that will be, that's why I'm very confident about Fox's future, because whether you love Fox or hate Fox, no one says, what is a Fox News? Please tell, please do tell me more about this Fox News. So I'm very confident about Fox's future because of that. And also because we have Chris Wallace, Brett Baer, we have uh, Bill Hammer. We have we have this great team uh, that produces all this great news, and our little Washington bureau uh, currently being renovated uh, while we're all out with the with the with the Rona. Uh, that uh, I, I am very confident about Fox's future, just because the branding is so strong, 
and people know what it is. And that's what's really going to matter. I call it the wormhole. When we go through the wormhole and, and we're sort of in it now and the dispatch is a reflection of that, the atomization of, of all these things. And then we're going to reconstitute on the other side. And I'm confident Fox will be one of those things that's reconstituted. Um, we at the dispatch see ourselves much like Matthew McConaughey's ship. Um, <laughs> Piercing. In interstellar going through the wormhole. Um, uh, so let's, let's bring it down to earth a little bit. Um, let's say just for the sake of argument, that Donald Trump is not reelected. Okay. Let's stipulate just for defecations and guffaws that, um, he is vexed by this. And that he is less than entirely gracious and decides to create a television network dedicated to his, um, you know, uh, from sort of his Mar-a-Lago Elba about uh, how he was stabbed in the back, how he is the government in exile, that uh, they will have their day in the sun once again Choose your resident catchphrases from history um, as you will. Uh, how successful do you think that would be? Um, where where would it fit in the, how, what would it do to the GOP? Because a lot of people, there are a lot of people in my world, I mean, everyone knows what my views on Donald Trump are, who have this very uh, sort of adorable view that once Trump loses, the GOP will become subservient and craven to any whoever is the next leader and the next leader is more likely than not to be normal and everything will be normal and it'll be great and we'll be having noodle salad at the beach with nice stories um i am very skeptical of this because i don't think that trump is would go away and be the statesman you know uh that other presidents try to be it, 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 out of office so what do you think the prospects of a post-Trump presidency, assuming for the sake of argument that yeah, he yeah, loses? Yeah, yeah. No, and, I, and I, w- I would say Trump is uh, four out of ten. He's got, he, by, let, put it this way, Biden, I think he's got a six out of ten uh, likelihood of winning the presidency at this point. I think if the election were held today, he, Trump would get stomped. Uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of football left to play, and the circus is coming to town. And, and it's worth noting that that in retrospect, four out of ten is actually better than what his odds were in 2016. Yeah, I would I had him at about 20 percent last yeah. time. So a lot of people did. I mean, I, I, a lot of political scientists say he had a one in five chance. Yeah. And the problem is that enumerate Americans think one in five means zero. Right. When actually, and, and as, I said, die, as I said, yeah. as I said to some of our colleagues who said, well, you said he, he was going to lose. I said, no, I said he had a one in five chance of winning. Would you get on an elevator that had a one in five chance of plummeting to the cellar and crushing your uh, shins? No. Uh, anyway, I one of the so there's a rhythm here, which is Obama does a little that he shouldn't. And then Trump runs through the the crack uh, at uh, 50 fold. And we look at the way Obama has handled his he's calmed down. But for a period of weeks, Barack Obama was putting himself in the news every day. 
right? And he was leaning into this and talking about that and putting out these videos. <clears throat> and we haven't heard from him for a minute, but the one where he in the knew that it had to leak to his staff talking about Trump and the rule of law and all of that stuff was really not cricket, right? It violated, it violated, you know, the Roosevelt, not to go back to Roosevelt bashing, but <clears throat> despite what uh, FDR thought, Washington's model for uh, the presidency was a good one. Two terms and go away. Uh, and that applies to Teddy too. When you're done, be done and go away. Of course, Teddy couldn't be happy killing 10,000 animals in Africa, stuffing them in shoeboxes and sending them back. Uh, but Obama is violating some of those norms. Now, of course, Democrats say Trump is violating the norms by calling for the imprisonment of his predecessor, which is definitely norm violative. There is no question that accusing your predecessor of crimes uh, and saying that they should be punished for them is does not fit in the model either. But what concerns me <clears throat> is that and by the way, that's something Obama didn't even do with Bush. Obama quickly swashed the blood for oil Halliburton probes. He said, no, we're not, we're not doing that. Um, what concerns me is that Trump will using say, well, Obama criticized me when I was uh, president. So why can't I criticize Joe Biden? And that he would, in fact, sit uh, at Mar-a-Lago and that he would, in fact, for 30 percent of the country, be the president in exile, right? That he would be down there holding forth with his loyal retainers around him uh, and being interviewed by family members and talking about everything that Joe Biden is doing is wrong, uh, that uh, Joe Biden was in it with Joe Scarborough and killing that lady, that whatever, whatever stuff that came to mind on a given day, that he would do that. Uh, and I think that that is a real possibility and a real danger. However, However, I don't know who it is that says that, you know, the Republicans, if Trump loses, will go back to some uh, uh, Burkean idol where, uh, the, you know, good, good sense and good reason uh, drowned out populist screeding. Uh, but I do know this. America hates a loser. Ooh, does America hate a loser? Hates a loser real bad. If Donald Trump loses, so there, there, it, it, so speaking of of how much, how little, if Trump loses by a small enough margin that his complaints about mail-in ballots and whatever else are heard, right? That it that it would be material. Uh, you know, if Trump loses, one of one of the things that these dummies who well, they're not dumb, but these these people who are uh, calling for uh, the abolishment of the electoral college, talk to me about a close election nationally. Oh, no, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, Tell yeah. me how that looks. Yeah. Uh, tell me how a national recount looks. Anyway, um, if uh, uh, if Trump loses by a narrow margin, then this stuff becomes more meaningful because he can say I was robbed and all those other things. But if Trump got spanked like the polls would have him getting spanked today, he can go to Mar-a-Lago and he can broadcast all he wants and it won't matter. Not even 30% will stick with him. In, now, they will go on to the next thing. There will be a new Pat Buchanan. There will be a new somebody, who will, Josh Hawley or whomever. Or, that, well, if it's Pat Buchanan, I think the model these days is our friend Tucker. But we can talk about that another time as well. But, uh, but of, the, of those politicians that, you know, if it's whatever, whichever nationalist populist that they like, um, they will always be there. But I guarantee you, if Trump gets skunked and goes down to Mar-a-Lago to fulminate and rage, there will be a very small audience for that.
Okay. But yeah, the, the, I, I think part of the problem is we are learning that in this post-consensus age um, of the media, you don't need a big audience. If if 30% of Americans were still thought Trump got robbed, still think he was the greatest hero who ever lived and the only person yeah. who could create a boulder so heavy even he couldn't lift it. But look at the weight. That's but plenty about, of market share. I mean, that's huge for market share. Right. But you know what beats uh, 30%? 60%. Uh, the Biden's victory in the Democratic primaries is a great example. Bernie Sanders was going to follow Donald Trump's model. I got a big field. I got a bunch of people running. I'm going to take my quarter of the vote and jam it all the way through. I can go from pen to post with my 25% and win because it will be enough. And everybody said, yep, this is how Bernie's going to, Bernie, look at Bernie. He's doing it. He's doing it. And then an amazing thing happened. Democrats said, well, I think I like Pete Buttigieg better than Biden, but it seems like we're kind of doing Biden and Biden has a message that's not offensive to me. I'm not upset by what Joe Biden's doing. I think he stands a pretty good chance of winning. I'll go for Biden. And it happened. And it happened faster and more thoroughly than anybody expected it to do. And then it was like, well, well, Bernie Sanders. No, Bernie Sanders is not going to hold out because he got pummeled. He got throttled. It was not close. And the same thing, it, it is true that this discovery about, and you can take it back to the 2000 election and maybe a little before, but data allows us to micro target and you can have things. Bush campaign did it very successfully in 2004. You can do all of that stuff where you have a motivated base and do all those things. But man, if you get caught out by the wave, like Bernie Sanders did, you get swamped. And that is what, that is what we have to remember as, as, it is much easier to appeal to a small base and keep them ferociously attached to you than it is to have broad appeal. But man, if you come up against somebody who's got broad appeal, you are going to get stroked. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But I think you are uh, like drinking from your flask um, on the highway and crossing some lanes here because I agree with you about the politics, you're, but you're veering into a political argument. My point is, look, Bernie Sanders... If he wanted to start a television network, oh yeah, yeah, if, well, you know, well, I mean, a show. If you want, if a you, show, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, 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 admittedly, there's some sui generis things about him, right? I mean, but but starting a cable network is hard. It's expensive. It was expensive when Rupert Murdoch did it uh, in 1996. Uh, it's a lot more expensive now. And as as we talked about before, cord cutting being what it is, uh, you're ha you're trying. We have heard about the threats to Fox news for our, for as long as there's been Fox news, I've been at Fox news from um, a little more than 10 years, every time. Well, it, now, and we remember when MSNBC was going to be on the right and they were going to have all this right talk. And Alan keys is making sense. <laughs> ex ex exactly. And <clears throat> the Joe, Scar Joe Scarborough 2.0, all of this stuff. And Fox news is going to do this. Fox News continues to dominate and, all, you know, I'm sure that the good people of Sinclair and I'm sure that the good people of all of these other places believe they're making good product and doing a good job. And, you know, kudos to them. Uh, but the truth is we're awfully good at what we do and we have developed a rapport with our viewers over time that is non-parel, right? You cannot 
just do that in a day. And you can't do it with just one thing. You can't do it with just opinion, or you can't do it with just news. You can't do it only with Tucker or only with Chris Wallace. You can't do it only with Sean or only with Brett Baer. You have to have the full complement. It's really expensive, and it takes a lot of experience to do. So the people who believe that it's just an ideological thing, well, I'm just going to like the, that, I forget what they call it, the uh, Onan, Onan. Onan works. Onan. (laughs) Not, I didn't mean it that way. (laughs) Did not mean it that way. Um, But the, you can't just turn on a camera and have people espouse right-wing views and have people say, well, I only liked, it, it underestimates the viewer. Well, these are people who say, well, I guess the reason they watch Fox News is because, and maybe they don't even watch Fox News. They say, the reason I think other people watch Fox News is because I've heard Fox News is really, really, really conservative. So we'll be conservative-ier. We'll be more so. If they say Fox uh, opinion shows are really in for Trump, we'll be triple in for Trump. It's not that simple. And what we do is hard. And I don't, you know, I don't want to overstate a, a... the, the 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 man we mentioned earlier as great in the historical figure sense uh, used to say, it's not rocket science, it's cable news, and when we would be overthinking things. But it requires a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of expertise, things we happen to have a lot of. All right, well, um, we will revisit this. We will play back some of this. Um, I'll deny everything and say you doctored the tape if I'm wrong. When uh, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump has his... Uh, great show. And also when Bernie Sanders has his great show, which now, if- now how about that for a Hannity and Combs style replacement, Trump and Sanders yelling. That would be great. It'd be like two old New Yorkers fighting over a cab. Yeah. I think it's just fantastic. I want it now. Um, you know, but with Sanders talking about how you can't get a good bagel anymore um, <laughs> because of capitalism. And Trump says too many carbs, it's too many carbs. <laughs> All right, Mr. Zarwald, I've kept you too long. I apologize. No, um, I enjoy your company. It's good to catch up with you. And I, I apologize to any West Virginians out there for my insinuation that some of you think of yourselves as Southerners. Um, I was, They'll be more upset about your kielbasa blasphemy, but that's fine. Um, um, I have no response to that. I mean, <laughs> other than the fact that I apologize for that, too. Other than the fact um, that that was the name of your high school band. Um, um, it was kielbasa blast of infamy, but um, that works too. Um, All right, my friend, um, I will see you sooner rather than later. And um, uh, it's always great to have you on. Congrats on your fifth appearance on The Remnant. Thank you, doctor. All right. So uh, Dr. Starwalt has left the studio. Um, Always fun to have him on. Um, He's definitely a fan favorite. And he's right. There's nothing wrong with hot dogs for lunch. Um, uh, I did want to float one idea out there. This is a gift to the meme brigades, um, the the 101st Airborne Flight and Keyboard Regiments of Trump World. Um, it seems I, I meant to circle back and talk to Chris about the um, the Biden strategy of staying in his bunker. Uh, mostly because I have this idea of, you know, that scene in the Warriors where the guy is clinking the bottles together and Warriors come out to play. I think you could do a great little gift thing where like they have for all these other things where they superimpose Trump's head on that dude and have him say 
Biden, come out to play, um, as a way of taunting Biden, because they clearly want him to come out um, and engage Trump, because with Trump standing alone and doing badly, um, he does badly, and he needs a foil. So someone out there, uh, that's my gift to you. Anyway, uh, I got to prep for the Chris Wallace live event this evening, which uh, will be come out in podcast form later this week. And uh, thanks again to Chris. Thanks again to all of you guys. Please sign up at the dispatch um, if you can to become a paid member of the community. We, um, we owe it all to you. And I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.